we're in, in this mini-series uh, titled Satisfy My Soul. And we'll uh, focus on generosity for, for two weeks before moving into our um, Advent series. And I find uh, this series appropriate because we're in a season of thankfulness as we approach uh, Thanksgiving and then, well, should we wait until December to talk about Christmas? Um, uh, I know JP likes talking about Christmas um, early, early in the year. Uh, you guys listen to Christmas songs already? No. My, my wife's trying to get us to watch Christmas movie. I'm like, just, just slow down. Uh, so, our, so our oldest son's birthday is not until the end of November. So there's no Christmas tree until after his birthday. Yeah, so, uh, I'm sure we should the story before when we had a Christmas tree in Florida and that was just up, a live tree, just stayed there all the way until springtime. That tree just became part of our family. It never died. I literally had to, oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, we, we were staying in an apartment and uh, the landlord was like, hey guys, uh, I think it's time to take those stuff off the patio. Uh, it's like, it's almost time for Christmas again. But yeah, it was there just the whole time in the sun. It just wouldn't die. No water, just stayed, was stayed strong. That's the last time we used a live Christmas tree. Like, no more. But the title of today's uh, teaching is Cultivating Generosity. Um, so something very specific. Um, if I had to use a longer title, it would have been Cultivating Christian Generosity. Uh, so I'll be in Philippians 4. But I'll spend most of my time creating an introductory framework uh, for this series um, before I get to the text. So for those of you who might get you know, through and say, hey, when are you going to ever read that verse? I'll get to you. Got to create a framework. Um, but here is the application question for today. Is the source of your discontentment rooted in not having the things you desire? That's the application question. See, that's the question I want to be thinking about. Uh, discontentment is a universal human experience that transcends uh, generations and cultures. Uh, we can explore our discontentment in terms of uh, the human condition and the tension between our desires and the recognition of having a greater purpose. We have a greater purpose, but there's also our desires. Uh, so generosity and contentment are interrelated because generosity is at the root of our contentment. When we practice generosity, whether acts of kindness, uh, giving up our time, or sharing our resources with others, it often creates a ripple effect. Uh, generosity goes beyond material giving. It includes a mindset of abundance and willingness to contribute to the well-being of others. So we could say that the act of giving is a pathway to contentment and fulfillment. Uh, there is a, a beautiful reciprocity in being generous. Um, it not only benefits the recipients, but also promotes the giver's sense of purpose and satisfaction. Um, talk about Christmas earlier. 
Um, when you give a Christmas gift, there's this feeling that you have when you give a gift. Uh, you don't, well, you guys ever give a gift and you're just not happy about giving it? Oh, oh you have? <laughs> no, 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 I mean, <laughs> but there's this realization that we collectively are part of something greater than ourselves and that our actions can positively impact others. However, uh, the frailty of our, human, uh, our humanity, it often causes us to allow our circumstances to determine the joy that we could have when we demonstrate generosity. What we'll see today is that is the heart of the Apostle Paul. Um, he reminds us that it's possible to have joy in any circumstance. See, as followers of Christ, our joy is not contingent on our circumstances. Our joy is connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is essential for our faith journey. Because if our joy is connected to our circumstances, then there will always be this tremendous highs and lows in life. Of today, low tomorrow. Good day, bad day. We feel like we have this roller coaster of emotion, this emotional roller coaster. Like, where will I ever find joy? You're not quite sure if it's going to be a good day or a bad day. In Philippians 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, um, my joy and crown, says, Stand fast in the Lord. Paul says, We can have stability in our lives because of Jesus Christ. When we reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we realize that most, the most uh, significant problem in our lives has already been solved. You know what the problem is? Our greatest problem was that we were sinners separated from God, and Jesus came to solve that problem for us. Jesus came to do what we can do for ourselves. He came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, just so we can have an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, Paul says you can rejoice in any circumstance because that's the gospel. That's the good news we're sharing. And Paul is actually practicing what he preaches because do you know what's happening while he's writing this, this letter? Can you make a guess? No, you guys aren't going to have me talk to myself today. Come on, make a guess. What's going on when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Paul's in prison. He's chained. And so he could have said, my circumstances are horrible. Therefore, my life is horrible. But instead he says, I'm going to rise beyond my circumstance because that's not where I find my joy. It's easy for us to lose joy because we're having a rough day. But if you're in prison like Paul was um, in the, with the early church, I mean, he's really having a rough day. They didn't just put you in shackles and put you in prison. I mean, they're beating you. And sometimes that's going to lead to crucifixion. But Paul closes this letter uh, by thanking the congregation for their generosity. Uh, this church in Philippi is a very 
generous church. Uh, if you've been around Emerge for a while, you know that we're not the kind of church to pry and beg anyone for money. You would agree? Oh. I thought we didn't pry and beg. See, what we do is we open the scriptures and we receive instruction. We learn what the Bible has to say and we place ourselves under the authority of scripture. See, sometimes we read a text that talks about how to steward our finances. And at times it might talk about how we demonstrate love to one another. Now, if someone says, I want to know about Jesus, here's what you need to know. Jesus spent about 25% of his ministry talking about wealth. That's 11 of the 39 parables. Now, if you want to know about Jesus, but you don't want to hear about um, what he says about wealth, then you're eliminating 25% of what Jesus spoke about. The question is, why did Jesus talk so much about wealth, specifically about us and our wealth? Well, he gave us the answer. Matthew 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our finances reveal what's important to us. I'll take it a step further. How we spend our finances often reveal our idols. See, uh, we wouldn't have this letter if it wasn't for the generosity of this church. Paul is writing this letter to say, Thank you for supporting me and for supporting the ministry. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, this church viewed Paul as being important. Uh, this church in Philippi was the model church for generosity. Uh, they demonstrated how we can worship God through financial stewardship. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 5. Don't worry, I'm coming to you. I'll get to a text. Just got to bring you on a journey a little bit. It says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous, which means unnecessary, for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Now, think about this. Paul is saying, I didn't really have to talk about your willingness to give, because a year ago, you were already ready to give. But he says, um, verse 3, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So Paul says, just in case there are people among you who are not generous, the ones who are going to make you look bad, I'm going to send the brethren ahead 
just to stir you up, use that you would give a year in advance. I'm just going to send this one to nudge you, just in case you have a few people who are not generous. It's not that this congregation had extreme wealth. Paul says they're an example because they gave out of their generosity, not obligation. Uh, this was one of the churches that Paul had planted before he moved on to uh, the next city. Um, but this church had faithfully supported his, his ministry for about 10 years. So even in Corinthians, he's writing about the same church. It's a difference. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, but in Corinthians, he's writing about the church. Notice the difference. He's writing about this church, but then he's also writing to this church. You're going to see more about this. Uh, there's a contrast between the Old and New Testament uh, um, form of giving. Uh, in the Old Testament, tithing was required of God's people. And tithe is what? 10%, right? Okay. But there are five types of offerings or sacrifices in the Bible that Israel brought before the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, they had to do the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Now, this is even different from if you had a business. Because if you had a business, you have to also pay taxes for having a business. You also had to pay taxes just for breathing, literally. Each sacrifice uh, served a specific purpose and function. So the important distinction is that the burnt grain and peace offerings, those were voluntary offerings. Meanwhile, the sin and trespass offering, uh, they were mandatory. If you added these offerings together, they would equate to 25% of a person's wage. That was the Old Testament. Then you look at the New Testament, and Jesus teaches generosity. Now, there are several principles uh, concerning how we give. Um, everything I'm sharing is important before we get to our text in Philippians. I promise you it is. And the number one is that our giving should be sacrificial. Hebrews 13 and verse 16 says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. See, many churches uh, focus solely on this 10%, but the New Testament teaches generosity, and we desire to be a generous church. But what does it mean to make our giving uh, sacrificial? Well, imagine a scenario where a single adult uh, with minimal expenses is earning $10,000 a month. Maybe they just graduated from college. In this context, tithing 10% might not necessarily constitute sacrificial giving compared to a family of four earning the same amount. Would you agree? Okay, good. See some heads nodding. The church accomplishes its mission through the generosity of everyone, um, where each individual, they release their resources to support the collective purpose of the church. So while the family of four might give 10%, the single adult might find the capacity to give 
20%, or even more. If there's a need within the community, the resources that's contributed by both the family of four and this individual, it fulfills the purpose because there's this interconnected support system and highlights the diverse ways in which everyone can contribute. One might give 10%, another give 20, another give 90. And that number is a true number. Um, and true story, uh, when Rick Warren, uh, before he wrote the book, Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church, he said, God, whatever money I get from this book, I'm going to give 90% away. And sure enough, when he got that from the book, his personal book, he gave 90% away. So that number is a true number. So the first principle is that our giving should be sacrificial. Number two, our giving should be consistent. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. Obviously, there are those who get paid monthly or biweekly. Um, so you give whenever um, you get paid. But here's the point of the text. Uh, there are some Christians who only give every few years. And they can give, but choose not to give. Uh, they'll do anything within the church except uh, giving. They don't contribute anything financially to move the mission forward. So uh, some give whenever they remember. I mean, just imagine if your boss just says, I'll just pay you whenever I remember. Wouldn't be good, right? I'm sure you guys would be like, just one day later, like, well, hold up, I worked. That never happened to you before. Trust me, it happened to me before. But consistent giving says to God, this is an act of worship. Because everything we have has been given to us by God. Given consistently is not about being rich or poor or even when things are convenient. It's about being faithful. God gives us resources and then we are to use those resources to bless others. So as followers of Christ, we don't possess anything. We steward everything. And when we steward what God has given us, we get to see the fruit of it. We get to see how our resources are able to bless those in need. Number three, our giving should be cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace uh, abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. So this should always be uh, the posture of our hearts um, in our generosity. 
Number four, our giving should be proportional. In Matthew 25, Jesus shared a parable illustrating the experiences of three servants who were entrusted with varying amounts of talents or riches. One had one, another had two, another had five. The significance isn't solely in the amount they received, but in how each servant stewarded what they were entrusted with. Unfortunately, one servant is described as being lazy because he failed uh, to fulfill his responsibility of stewarding his portion. Um, he measured his responsibility based on what the others received, thinking, well, I didn't have as much as they do, um, so uh, let them take the lead. The biblical perspective emphasizes that whatever God has entrusted, great or small, is an opportunity for sacrificial, cheerful, consistent, and proportionate giving. So in Corinthians, that we, that we read earlier, Paul is talking about this church in Philippi. So back to our text in Philippians 4. Paul says to these believers in Philippi, you are the example of generosity. You are a generous church. Now, what would it be like if Paul were to write a letter about the generosity of this church? I mean, I would want him to say, oh, Emerge is the kind of church that can be an example. Look at their generosity. They're always blessing people in the city. Wouldn't that be a good letter for Paul to write? Paul is in prison. He's broke. He's in need. And so this church took a generous offering and sent it to Paul with a man named Epaphroditus. Paul is grateful and writes, Thank you for blessing me. As you bless me, you bless others as I carry out my ministry. Philippians 4, verses 10, 10 to 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pause for a moment and consider verse 11. Paul says, I've learned to be content. We cannot be generous unless we are content. Uh, we live in a consuming culture. Our culture thrives on the idea that if it can create a desire for a product within a person, it makes them feel like life is incomplete without the product. We're targeted to reach into our pockets to purchase something because we're not content with being left out, FOMO. You ever feel like that before? 
Maybe it's a new phone that came out. We take money that could advance the kingdom of God and we redirect it to something God never intended. Meanwhile, others go unmet because we've redirected the resources to fulfill our desires. I mean, how often do we pray before we make a purchase? We go to Amazon or we go to our favorite restaurant and say, God, I have the resources, but do you want me to um, have this? Is this a good use of what you've entrusted? I mean, how often do we do that? Maybe not very often, right? We're more likely to say, I work so hard, so I'm treating myself. And you should treat yourself. I mean, I do that sometimes. But here's the point I'm making. A faithful steward doesn't absorb wealth on themselves. They use wealth to bless others. Um, John D. Rockefeller, you guys ever heard that name before? John D. Rockefeller was uh, the wealthiest man of his time. Um, in 1916, he was announced as the first billionaire. But he was asked uh, about the secrets to his wealth. And his answer became the 10-10-80 principle. He divided his income into three categories. I have a little snapshot on the screen. You can see. See, 10% he gave away to, you know, he gave away the first 10%. The next 10% he saved. And then he lived on the remaining 80%, the 10-10-80 principle. Now, this principle promotes financial discipline, long-term wealth accumulation, and responsible spending. But this principle has a biblical root. Proverbs 21, verse 20. The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Now, you may think it's impossible to live on 80% of your income. And obviously, um, depending on where you are in life, sometimes it can be difficult. Because everyone's a different wavelength. But sometimes, we're simply living beyond our means. The 10-10-80 principle is opposite of what culture teaches. Culture says to pay your bills, save some money, and if you have anything left, you can give to your favorite charity. God says, honor me first, save some money, then pay your bills. See, that is the order that God blesses. He wants you to create a budget that makes this order possible. If we can't find contentment, we'll never create a system for God to honor. So, are you content? And if not, I would submit that you may not know Jesus as well as you think because he is the source of genuine contentment. I mean, why would you want to hold on to what you have when Jesus gave up everything for you? What is your posture? What is your heart's posture? 
Look what Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians 4.12. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul says, I've learned the secret to living in lack and abundance. What does that mean for us? Well, here's how it works. You begin your career, and you're making a decent salary. And as you're faithful, you start to earn more income. You even get a promotion. And at that moment, you begin to think, well, I'm doing pretty good financially. And you are. But Paul says, be careful, because there's a secret to your wealth. You are not the source. He says, who gave you the brain that you have? Who gave you the opportunity that you have? Who do you think gives you the ability to gain wealth? The secret to our resources comes from God. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. You might wonder, well, how does this all make sense? It is with this understanding of generosity that Paul writes, Philippians 4, 13, that we often miss you know, misunderstand. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Paul made that statement, he's talking about the realization of generosity. Paul says, I can learn how to live with wealth because I know it comes from God and he's given it to me to be generous with it. The believers in the Philippian church understood these principles and Paul was thankful. Look at verses 14 to 16. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. See, a lot of missionaries can talk about that, right? We have a missionary in our midst here today. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once again for my necessities. Here's the beauty of uh, Christian generosity. The believers in the Philippian church were mostly Gentiles, but they heard about these Christian Jews that were struggling with poverty in Jerusalem. When the Gentiles heard of the hardship out of their poverty, this same Philippian church, they took an offering and they sent it to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Guys, they're in poverty. And they said, although we're in poverty, we can't allow our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to be in poverty. So they took an offering out of their poverty and sent it to Jerusalem. This poor Gentile church is sending an offering to this poor Jewish church but the story doesn't end there. Paul's in prison, and he's in need. The same Philippian believers hear about Paul's need, and they say, well, Paul is in prison, 
and we have to take care of them. So how can a church in poverty do more than they're already doing? They don't have enough to share because they just sent an offering. But Jesus gave an example in Mark 12, verses 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. Watch this. All she had to live on. Jesus says, it's not the size of the gift. It's the heart behind it. Generosity requires awareness. If you know someone who is poor, what will you do about it? How do you intend to meet someone's need if you believe you're living in poverty? The Philippian church became aware of Paul's need and decided we have to do something although we're poor. Paul says, thank you for your generosity. This is why he's writing in Corinthians and he's talking about this church, the, Phil the church in, Phil in, in Philippi, and saying, can you imagine if you become a people who can give out of nothing? Look at their life. In Philippians 4.17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He says, it's not about me taking this money and saving for my retirement or purchasing a bunch of stuff. He says, I'm more concerned that through your generosity, you're going to reap the fruit of it. God is going to bless you because you looked beyond what you had and decided to bless me. In verse 18, it says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, um, when people's hearts were in the right place and they made their sacrifice, it smelled so pleasing to God because it was pure, sacrificial worship. Do your finances bring a pleasing aroma to God, or does it satisfy your greed? If our financial decisions are motivated by what's most rewarding to us, we will live an empty life. God doesn't want us to live a life without making a difference. We all can do something. Verses 19 to 20 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will supply 
every meal. So often we think, you know, some of the needs that we have are the things that we have are needs, but it's really a want. But Paul says, I'm in prison. I'm living off the generosity of the poor. But I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay because God's riches have been entrusted to his people. As God's people are generous, Paul says, ministry is taking place. I'm being cared for because God's people are using their finances as an act of worship. See, Christians have a different value system. And the way you know it's working is this. When we give our finances sacrificially and generously as an act of worship, uh, the non-Christians, they look and say, why would you do that? See, we have a different value system. We use our finances in a way that it doesn't consume our lives. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the only way to become a disciple. I'm going to leave you with this verse in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And the riches there, he's not necessarily talking about financial richness. Paul talks about how Jesus exchanged a royal crown for a crown of thorns. Look at what generosity did for all humanity. Jesus dying on a cross just so we could have an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins. I invite the worship team to come forward. So the question I ask you again, why would you hold on to your stuff so tightly considering what you've experienced through the generosity of Jesus Christ? How will you steward what God has blessed you with today? You know, when we talk about uh, finances, it can often be one of the uh, most challenging teaching for uh, any leader. Because no one wants to hear pastors talk about finances. Uh, but it's not about taking finances. It's about being good steward of what God has given you. It's about blessing others. Um, we exist as a church to make a difference in this city. And the fact of the matter is, it requires resources, right? But if all we do is just to, you know, pay bills, we can't make a difference. But as we're giving, great or small, collectively, it moves the mission of God forward. Um, today I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we, we won't partake of communion today. Uh, we'll, but we'll do that next week. But I want us to really reflect. And here's what we're going to be reflecting on. I'll just get out of Lucy's way a little bit. 
I don't want us to reflect on the fact that a pastor uh, just gave a sermon on finances. But I want you to reflect on your stewardship to what you have. I want you to think about the difference that you could be making in someone's life, great or small. If someone gives $100 and someone gives $10, if someone's in need, collectively, we get to be a part of it. Uh, this past uh, Thursday, I believe, Thursday morning, I was speaking with one of our missionaries, um, Dan and Esther. Uh, you get a chance to meet them um, next year. Uh, they'll be in town. And, and they were sharing about how they gave up everything, went on the mission field, brought their family. And they were over there, and the term was ending. And they were wondering, like, God, do you want us to stay? We've given up our comfort. We don't have the things that we're used to. We can't afford the things that we want. We're here doing this. And they had an opportunity to come back. But instead they say, rather than renewing their missionary term for two more years, they made a decision to say, we're going to stay here for however long God chooses, not knowing if they'll have resources, great or small. But whatever gift that you give and I give, it helps to support that mission. So you might say, well, it's, it's a dollar, it's two dollars. No, no, no. We're not asking you to support just one. We're saying just bring it into the house because every gift collectively supports the mission, which is why we spend a whole month bringing missionaries in here so you can see that every gift is making a difference. And now God has us in a, in a place where we can have an opportunity to make a difference in our city. And guess what? Every gift that you give will make a difference. We want to make a difference in this city. We want to be able to have our compassion center where people who are in need can walk through the doors and get aid. We want to be able to clothe those who need clothing. Can you imagine, you know, what it would look like if someone says, I have no food, and the church says we have no, no way to support you? But we want to know that as a church, if you come and say, we have no food this week, you don't? That's why we exist. We exist to make a difference. So don't see you know, me as a, a pastor talking to you and saying and trying to get you money. No, it's, it's not about that. It's about what we can do with the little or the great. It's to make a difference. So consider what you can do. Consider the poor among you and what you can do with the extra that you have. You probably know classmates or coworkers who, who don't have as much, and you can share a little bit extra. Buy them a lunch. Do something special. And I believe God is trying, to, is trying to challenge us today to look beyond ourselves. Like this church in, in Philippi is saying we're poor. Not only are we going to support a poor church, but we're also going to support someone in need. And that's what God wants us to do with our resources, to be good stewards with everything that we have. So I'm going to pray for us. As I'm praying, just reflect on what you can do different in your lives.
And maybe you are here and you're saying, I'm not a believer. Or maybe it's your first time coming, you're like, why would I have to come to a service today? We're teaching about finances. But Jesus wanted us to understand that even in our giving, it's an act of worship. Worshiping God in our finances is no different from singing a song. We do all those things with a sincerity of heart. So Father, I pray for the one who's here who might not have a relationship with you. I pray, God, that even now that you can speak to them to maybe realize this idea of stewardship and, and maybe even come to know you and receive forgiveness of sins and to learn how to worship you in their everyday life. I pray, God, for all of us here in this room, those who might be watching or listening, that we can look in our lives and see what can we do different? How can we steward what you've provided to us? Our time, our gifts, our resources, whatever it is that you've gifted us, God. Help us to be like the church in Philippi, that we can look beyond ourselves and look to a greater purpose. But God, I also want to pray for those who don't have resources. We're not neglecting them, God. I pray, God, that you provide for them, God. We believe, God, by faith that you provide resources, whether it's through jobs or um, new careers or businesses, whatever it is, God, however you choose. I pray, God, that you provide for those who are in lack. But I pray also, God, if there's someone here who is lacking something, help us as a church to be a resource to them. Moved by your spirit, moving our hearts, God. We just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.